I know that those songs were worshipful, that they are on point, and they are what I had planned eight months ago. This message has been in the works for that long because I knew at the end of the book of Judges, after everything that we saw that Israel went through for 350 to 450 years could be toilsome. It could be difficult to truly grasp how deep and desperate they were at a time in their history that I knew this Sunday, this message was what we needed to remind ourselves that we are not living in the days of judges. We are not living with all of that uncertainty. We are not living with all of that um, pressure without having someone to lead and guide us. We have an amazing king. We have an amazing Lord. In fact, he's called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're not living in desperate times. What happened in the book of Judges is not happening today. What they went through, we are not going through today. What they struggled with, we are not struggling with today because we have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his might, we serve Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, in all of his glory and majesty, in all of his work being completed, and now we are just waiting for his final triumphant return. Israel had the promise of that. We have the fulfillment of it. And that fulfillment of Christ as our King of kings and Lord of lords is a precious promise that we all hold on to dearly. In fact, in 1 Timothy 6.15, in Revelation 17.14, and Revelation 19.16, it says very clearly, very, very plainly for us to read and understand that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is not just one king among many kings. He's not one Lord among many lords. He's not one God among many gods. He is the only true king. He is the only true Lord, and he is the only true God. And he has been revealed to us in fullness. We are not guessing what the Messiah would be like. We are not wondering when he will come and do his work on the cross. We're not wondering if our sins really, really will be forgiven. We live in the present reality of his life, of his death, of his resurrection, and his ascension and ruling and reigning in heaven above, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from that vantage point, one day in history, he will bring it all together in one single day, one single moment, when he returns triumphantly, not as a baby born in a manger, but as triumphant Lord Jesus the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we live in that reality. That is who we serve, who we honor, who we love. And as Jesus is our king, that one thought, that one subject, that one brief moment of truth, I could fill a year's worth of messages talking about his kingship and what it means to us and how we can live in that kingdom, his spiritual kingdom that he established for us, and the physical kingdom that he will establish for us in the last days. But I want to highlight four real quick ways 
in which Jesus is our king. And then we're going to look at a fifth one in a little bit more detail. So these first four I'm putting in there just to give us encouragement, give us something to think about, to give us something to just be encouraged over. Because the people of Israel during the days of Judges didn't see this. They didn't realize it. They didn't have the fullness of it, the expansion of it, and the clarity of it. They were missing something. And in missing that, they were doomed to do what is right in their own eyes. They had no king. They had no leader, no instruction, no guidance to give them how to honor God and how to love one another. But we have that. And so I want to encourage you with a few things. First of all, as king, Jesus is faithful. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. Now, there's a lot in that verse, but I just want you to understand that first part of it. He's faithful. He will not fail you when he gives you a promise, when he tells you he's going to do something, he's going to do it. I'm not always going to be faithful to you as a pastor. I will fail you. Your elders will not always be faithful to you. They will fail you. Your deacons will not always be faithful to you. They will fail you. Your spouse, they can fail you. The government, they can fail you. The only certainty of faithfulness, absolute perfection of faithfulness, is Jesus Christ. And he has said, I am faithful. I will not shirk from my responsibilities. I will never let you down. How many times have we let someone down? How many times have we failed to fulfill our word and our commitment? How many times did we disappoint someone because we didn't do it completely or the right way? Not so with King Jesus. King Jesus is faithful. And he has promised in that faithfulness that he will strengthen us and protect us from the evil one. Not from trials, not from hardships and difficulties, not from failures in this life, but he will protect us from the power of the evil one. And he is faithful to fulfill that promise. Secondly, as king, Jesus is righteous, meaning that he is always right. Again, there will be times where I'm not always right. There is a time when the elders are not always right. There is a time when the deacons are not always right. There is a time where your spouse and your family and friends are not always right. There is even a time, as hard as it might be to believe, that the government may not always be right. But Jesus, King Jesus, he is right all of the time. All of the time. Everything he says and everything he does is right. And that's what righteousness incorporates, the rightness of who he is and what he has done. And in Jeremiah 33, 15, it says this about God. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. That's talking about Jesus. And he will do what is just and right in the land. So you have a guarantee when Jesus says this, it's right. When Jesus promises this, it is right. When Jesus does this in our lives, it is right. Everything he is and everything he does is 
righteous. King Jesus is righteous. Thirdly, as king, Jesus is powerful. He is mighty. In Romans 14, 11, Paul says, Surely as I live, the Lord says, or says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. Now, when we talk about Jesus as king, and he is powerful, you might have thought, oh, maybe Tim's going to talk about that he created the heavens and earth. He did. That he brought things into existence and gave life. Yes, he did. That he holds the moon, the stars, and all the planets in order. Yes, he does. That he makes the moon and the sun shine its brilliance. Yes, he does. But I imagine that the most powerful act that he will perform in all of history is that every single individual who has lived, is living, and will ever live will have to submit to his sovereignty. And he has the power to break the human will to submit and acknowledge he is God. Regardless of how much fuss they put up in this life, no matter how much disagreement and logical arguments and science they appeal to or um, statistics they appeal to, it doesn't matter. In the end, I know every single individual that has drawn breath will acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the power of King Jesus. And fourthly, out of Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 4, as king, Jesus is everlasting. It says in Isaiah, trust in the Lord forever. Why? Why can I trust in him? Why can I put my faith in him? Why can I acknowledge him? Why can I worship, serve, and love him? Why is it possible that he is so good? It is because he is everlasting. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord himself, is the rock eternal. He is solid. We're told in another scripture that he's unchangeable. That he doesn't just simply on a whim change his mind or his opinion. He is completely certain of what has happened and the motives behind it. He is completely certain of what is happening and what are the motives behind it? And he is absolutely certain about what the future will bring and the motives behind it. It was no shock, no surprise to him that today's service was changed from our human perspective. He is everlasting, eternal, solid. And because of that, when we trust in him, when we follow him, we can have the guarantee as King Jesus that it's not going to change. We change all the time. Leaders are raised and leaders fall. People in authority are raised and people in authority fall. People that we follow are raised and then they fall. And it happens to all of us. We are not eternal in that sense. Our power and our influence does not last. But King Jesus, his power and his influence last forever. And then lastly and fifthly, and this is where I want to spend a little bit more time, as king, Jesus is satisfied. Now, a song that I used to listen to early on in life, and still listen to it every now and again, is a song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, by the Rolling Stones. 
And in that song, the Rolling Stones say, hey, everything in life, I just can't get no satisfaction. I can't be satisfied. And we look at that and we understand that that is a true condition of humanity. We are not satisfied. How much money do you need to be happy? You're not going to be satisfied with that. You're going to want a dollar more. You're going to want more and more and more. And all of the marketing and all the advertising that we are bombarded with every day tells you you're not satisfied until you have this or do this, until you go there on vacation or until you eat this brand new meal that we're offering. You can't be satisfied. And Israel suffered that satisfaction more than anything. They could not be satisfied with what Moses taught. They also wanted what the Canaanites taught. They couldn't be satisfied with what Abraham believed. They needed what the Amorites believed. And they had to add all these other things to their religious activity and thoughts because they were not satisfied with God, Jesus, the King. They were not satisfied with that, with him as a person. I know we have all felt this. We have all gone inside after a day outside or after hiking or even driving in the car here in Pueblo, and we have been parched. We need to drink something. And that first second that you take that drink, there is just a real sense of well-being, isn't there? There is a sense of, oh, how quenching, how refreshing, how invigorating. The same thing happens when, let's say you've been sick a couple days, and you've been in bed, you've been lounging on the couch, you've just been a couch potato, and you take that first shower after a couple days of being sick, and that shower just enlivens you, it refreshes you. You all of a sudden get a, feel just even a little bit better because you took a shower. The problem is, with a nice glass of water, cold glass of water, or a nice shower after kind of feeling icky, you're going to have to do it again. You're going to have to take another drink. You're going to have to have more water. You're going to have to take another shower, please. We're never satisfied. Even with something that brings us a moment of satisfaction, it's not everlasting satisfaction. King Jesus is everlasting satisfaction. Look with me in John chapter 4. I'm going to look at two passages in John uh, 4 and John 7 that relate to each other, that talk about, as king, Jesus is satisfying. Now, we're picking the story up kind of halfway through it. In John chapter 4, starting in verse 10, he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus talks about, hey, can you get me a drink out of the well? And the dialogue goes like this. The Samaritan woman said to him, well, let me just start in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came up and drew water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then he defines this. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, to draw the water with, and the well is so deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? Very natural human reaction. You're talking about living water, but yet you can't even get water out of the well that's right here. Are you greater than Jacob? Now he's already said to this woman, if you knew who it was, 
that's standing before you, the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one, the anointed one, God in flesh, standing appear you as King of kings and Lord of lords. If you knew that, Jesus said you would have asked of living water. And all she's thinking of is, how are you going to get water out of the well? How is that possible? You shouldn't even be talking to me. We're enemies, and you think I'm dirty and unclean, and, and I think you're stuck up as a Jew. And so Jesus answers in verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's talking about the well, you know, this H2O. Every time you take a drink, I need to take another drink. I need again and again and again to get satisfied, to get my nourishment, but to be satisfied, my quench to be satisfied. And he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. I can attest to that. All of us can believe that. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come to this well to draw water. Now, she is spiritually immature. She is confusing the analogy that Jesus is giving between physical water and the spiritual life that he can give. And so she's still in this world of, I don't quite understand what's going on here. How can you offer me living water so I can get out of doing a daily task of getting physical water? Now, Jesus has never promised that if you believe in him, you will never have a physical need. No, you still need to work, you still need to breathe, you still need to eat, you still need to have a house. You, you, I mean, there's things that you still need to do. He hasn't promised that those physical requirements of our life go away. But what he's promised, if you believe in me, I will give you eternal life and you will never need it again. You will be satisfied. Now he goes on to explain that in a little bit more detail for us in John chapter 7, just a couple chapters later, he says in verse 37 of John 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then he defines it. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He's talking about the same thing here. If you believe in Christ, you believe that he came and died and rose again, that he took the penalty of your sin upon himself on the cross, and that he satisfied God's wrath, if you believe that, you will be satisfied. Your wrath will be satisfied. Your sin will be satisfied. Your debt will be paid. Your division, your contrast with God, your alienation from God will be gone in Christ. And then he finishes up in verse 39. And John gives us some commentary here to help us understand this because it still might be confusing the first time you read it, especially to the first time people heard Christ speak this way. John says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, Jesus is glorified now. 
He's sitting in his glory. He rose from the dead, ascended into the heavens in perfect form and in perfect rule and with paying a perfect debt. He is glorified. And so this promise that John is saying, this living water, this fullness of life, this being completely satisfied is for those who have received the Spirit after the Son has been glorified. This is the Holy Spirit. This is what is called regeneration, being born again, having new life, believing and becoming a Christian, having faith. And John says, this is what it's like. When you believe in him, you are eternally satisfied. It's pretty much the same thing that Paul says in Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 19. Listen to this. And my God, Paul says, will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory of Jesus Christ. To you, God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. He says something very similar in Psalm 103. David says this in the first few verses of that psalm. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And listen to these benefits. Listen to these satisfying truths. He says, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like that of eagles. David even says this relationship that you have with God the Father through Jesus Christ satisfies you with good to the point where it feels like you are absolutely energized with youth. Who doesn't want to be energized with youth? And I know if I could see you, you'd all be raising your hand. How amazing it would be if you woke out of bed and you just ran 100 miles an hour for 12 hours a day and then you slept. You wish you had that now. It was wasted on the youth. But God says, in a relationship with me through Christ, it is as if every day you wake up with the most fullness of energy you've ever imagined and you soar like an eagle. It's in his power. It's in his ability. And Jesus says, it's only through me. As king, Jesus is satisfying. Now, to take this home and to make some application to us, I have a central thought. What Israel lacked in the book of Judges, we have. We have a king, and his name is Jesus. And he is completely and absolutely faithful. He is completely and absolutely righteous. He is completely and absolutely powerful. He is completely and absolutely everlasting. And he is completely and absolutely satisfying. He establishes good in us to where regardless of the circumstances of life, no matter how uncomfortable, difficult, and challenging it may be, how unplanned it may be, we can be satisfied. We can be at peace. 
we can be at comfort, and we can be more than just okay with it. We can rejoice in it. You see, gone are the days for his people to be wandering. Gone are the days of doing what is right in our own eyes. Gone are the days of the judges. Today is the day of our Lord. Today is the day of victory. Today is the day of being satisfied with him. Amen? Amen. If you're not standing, stand now and let's close in prayer. Our gracious Father, you are a mighty God to us. Lord, it is joy-filled to be able to sing your praises and to announce to the world your greatness. And Lord, even now, while we are celebrating your kingship, we know, Father, that there are Christians throughout this world that are suffering, especially in Afghanistan right now. I pray that you would protect them and give them courage, give them strength to resist the evil one, give them power even in the face and time of martyrdom. For, Father, their sacrifice will not go unnoticed, and their names are recorded in the book of life, just like ours. Father, may we pray for them, may we serve and minister to them in a way that would be meaningful to them, and Lord, thank you for making Jesus not only our King, but their King, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, forever now and forever, amen, amen.